on a packed show tonight. We will have a look at what is going on in the English Channel, exclusive footage from an Albanian gang. We'll talk about net zero, why conservative voters are turning their back on the idea. We'll ask what it all means for the leadership campaign with a trust supporter. Some extraordinary polling showing us how British media has become more woke, more liberal and more left-wing over the last 10 years. And joining me on Talking Pints, the man who was the voice of Margaret Thatcher on Spitting Image for many, many years. Good evening. Well, we weren't wrong yesterday. We said between six and seven hundred would cross the English Channel. The official number was six hundred and ninety-six, with another boat picked up with a further fifty on at one o'clock this morning. And I promised you last night we would show you some exclusive and quite shocking footage. And I have to thank a GB News viewer who's done a deep dive into TikTok and found this material. This video from July was on TikTok. And here it is. They're in, uh, coming across from Albania. They're going to Brussels by aeroplane. There they are. They've arrived in Brussels. They're now on the coast, as you can see. They're at Dunkirk. And this is where they've got to get to. They have got to get to London. And the advert says it can all be done in 24 hours. A video here of the boat uh, to tell the punters who are going to get rid of four and a half, five thousand, what it is. And there we are, 27th of July. Come on the 27th of July. It's four and a half thousand pounds per person. There's the phone number. We've obviously redacted the last part of the phone number, but there is the phone number to ring. And this is your journey. Look, beautiful flat seas. There's the boat just taking off from the beach of Dunkirk. Not a gendarme in sight, quite why Pretty Patel wants to send tens of millions of more pounds to them, is quite utterly beyond me. And they're off on their cross-channel journey. Uh, but, of course, it turns out that it's not 21 miles or so across the English Channel. No, all they've got to do, all they've got to do is get to the UK 12-mile line. That's the important thing. Once you get to the UK 12-mile line, something is going to happen. And we'll see this in a little bit as this film progresses. Yes, here we are, a sunny day. They're at sea. There we are. They're at sea. Everybody's happy, nice and calm. And there, there's the taxi. The taxi's arrived, yes, otherwise known as Border Force. It could, of course, on some days have been the RNLI, but they crossed the 12-mile line. They've probably, in many cases, been escorted there all the way by the French Navy, and they're picked up. And here we are, they've arrived. It's London. It's Saturday night in London. We're staying in a lovely four-star hotel. Let's all go out and celebrate. That was last week. This week, today, this was posted on TikTok. Have a look at this. There we are. Summer sale. You can now come for a knockdown price of £3,500. Well, there it is, folks. How on earth? How on earth is this allowed on a major international social media platform like TikTok? What the hell are the National Crime Agency, the Home Office other police forces doing? Or is it that TikTok is simply unenforceable? We did put those questions directly to them. The Home Office said posts used by smugglers to promote lethal crossings are totally unacceptable and require social media companies to engage in dialogue to prevent their platforms from being exploited. And TikTok say this content has no place 
on TikTok. We do not allow content that depicts or promotes people smuggling, as stated in our community guidelines, and have permanently banned these accounts. We work closely with UK law enforcement. Well, I suppose I'm tempted to think perhaps not closely enough. Well, in the light of all of this, in the light of the numbers now rapidly going back up again, my audience question for you today is what will Truss or Sunak do about this? Let me know your thoughts, your views. Farage at gbnews.uk. I'll tell you what I think. Nothing. No, no, absolutely nothing. Because what are their stated positions? Last night in the Hustings debate that took place down in Exeter, from Liz Truss, we got she supports the Rwanda policy and she wants to make sure the ECHR will not be able to overrule domestic attempts to curb illegal immigration. What she means is she's supporting Dominic Raab's Bill of Rights, which we know has no legal supremacy over ECHR. Rishi Sunak has promised radical measures. Mm. And privately, his people brief that he's prepared to have a think about ECHR. I think they will do precious little. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Joining me, Out Mehmet, chairman of Migration Watch. Out, they were extraordinary scenes in those videos, weren't they? They were unbelievable, frankly. But the fact is that they're getting away with it. That's why they're doing it. If they couldn't get away with it, if they couldn't get people here, then, frankly, it wouldn't happen. And not only is it happening, but once they get here, if they're not being moved on anywhere else, if they're not being sent back, then what on earth is going to persuade the smugglers in particular that they're not going to be able to make money out of this? And what, what sort of persecution are they exactly running away from in Albania? I mean, we keep hearing that this is all about the human rights of the individuals and they've fled this and they've fled that. They haven't, for goodness sake. Not only have they fled from somewhere where there is no persecution, uh, in the way that we we recognise it with regard to refugees, but they go through safe countries to get, to get to the shore to come <clears throat> over this yeah. country. And our potential prime minister, whichever one of them is, it, it's going to be, is saying absolutely nothing about it beyond spouting the usual claptrap about um, we, we, we must pull out of the ECHR, which... Which, which, which they're not saying. But they're not saying that. They're not saying that. They're qualifying that. it. You're uh, right. I mean, You're right. You know, I think actually, to be fair, Suella Braverman very clearly at the start of this contest was saying that. I think the rest of them, including Kemi Badnock, Kemi Badnock was strongish on it, but they're not so strong. And, and these are sort of hinting privately, we might have to look at this in the future. But there's no indication they're going to do that. There's no indication that they're going to take on much of what we signed up to at the United Nations, which while it may not have force of law, is used by judges yeah, no, absolutely. In, in judgments. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't see this changing at all. No. I, look, two things, Nigel. First of all, I've heard from the Home Office today that maybe Rwanda is actually having an effect, that there are fewer people coming over than we expected. <clears throat> Absolute tosh. We're still going to get, even at the present rate, something like fifty to 55,000. Is that really a small number, something mm. To, mm. to celebrate? Quite. Even if 
we get to this stage, which, which will be several years down the road, frankly, of withdrawing from the ECHR, it won't make the blindest bit of difference so long as once people get here or get to our 12-mile limit at that point, they're taken in and they go nowhere other than to central London to celebrate their arrival. Once, really, we start showing business, that we mean what we say, that you're not going to be allowed to stay, at that point, there may be some impact. Otherwise, all of it so is just our, talk. What are our politicians scared of? Um, I think what they're scared of is failure. I mean, they're failing anyway. But what they don't want to do is make promises, make commitments that ultimately they'll be judged on. But that's politics. That's what politics is all about. If you want to be re-elected, frankly, you make a promise, you keep it, it works. And then you say to the people, look what I've done. Vote for me again. At the moment... Really, there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that any of them, frankly, on either side, can point to and say, look what we've done. No. And the sheer brazenness of what's appearing there on TikTok. You know, phone numbers, UK mobile phone numbers, summer sales. It's unbelievable, It's it? mickey-taking in the extreme, frankly. We've got people who are effectively sticking two fingers up. It's not absolutely. V for victory, it's V... You know what? Yeah, I do. Out oh, Mehmet, thank you for joining us. Now, another issue that I think is vitally important and thus far doesn't get talked about very much in the Conservative leadership debate is the whole question of net zero, which, of course, Boris Johnson went for in a very, very big way indeed. Now, overnight, there's been some very, very interesting polling on this. Um, and, and it would seem that many... Conservative voters in the country are not quite as in love with the idea of a net zero target as those that run most UK media and many of those in the Palace of Westminster in both Houses of Parliament behind me. No, people are reticent about net zero. I think they're reticent because they realise we produce less than 1% of global GDP, at least that's man-made CO2, uh, naturally occurring CO2 is far bigger than anything that we can put out. But they also feel it's going to cost them too much blooming money. And a piece of polling appeared in the Telegraph this morning, and it came from the campaign group Car26. The director, of course, is climate sceptic Lois Perry. Lois, what did this poll tell us? It basically showed us that 70% of Conservative voters at the last election would actually like a pause and review on all net zero policies. That's, that's those who expressed an opinion. And actually, 52% of those who expressed an opinion overall, and that will include obviously Labour, Lib Dems, Greens, yeah. the whole, you know, the whole <coughs> shebang, basically. Yeah, so people don't want it. So it's 52-48 across the whole of the country. Uh, yeah, Very that's your result. Numbers. That's your result. <laughs> I called that, numbers. actually. Four points I should have put a bet on. But the on. point is that if you look at, listen and read most mainstream UK media, you would think there was a unanimous view yeah. that net zero was the right target, and it's not too dissimilar in both the houses over in the Palace of Westminster. It's very strange, isn't it? So Why? How are people forming these opinions? What do you think? What, I mean, I, I speculated a moment ago. Yeah. What is it you think that is making people say, whoa, hang on a second? Well, we've just found out that 
during a period where basically there's effectively no government or, very, you know, there's no, there's no prime minister in place, that the civil service have awarded in the last couple of days a £70 billion procurement contract for net zero projects um, across the country or net hospitals, schools. You know, th this is about money. If we pause net zero, there's 70 billion quid of our money there that's going to be spent, that the civil service have put out there. I don't remember voting for that. Do you remember voting <coughs> no. for that? No. Well, of course, it was the takeover of the Conservative Party by what I call the Richmond Greens, and that yes. means Carrie and the Goldsmiths. And I was very, very pleased to see Ben Goldsmith attacking you today. Yes, yeah, so am you, I. And you're a lunatic. I am a lunatic, but then you, that makes sense. You, because you question. Oh, no, you mustn't question the orthodoxy. No. Well, of course, you know all about no, that. No, no, Farage, no debate allowed. No debate. No, but my worry, Lois, and, you know, you're a full-time campaigner on this issue, producing very interesting polling Thank like you. this. But here we have a leadership election for the next prime minister. We know yeah. where Boris Johnson took us on this. But I'm looking at it. You know, Liz Truss, well, she's committed to net zero by 2050, but mm. she does try to tempt that element that are questioning the cost of net zero by talking about green taxes or, yes. or should I be you know, social, social, renewable and green taxes on yeah. electricity, 25%. She said there'd be a moratorium. What she means is she'll suspend it temporarily and then bring it back again. And Rishi Sunak... Well, he loves it. Well, he basically says that we shouldn't have uh, too many solar panels, we should grow lots of food, and he'll cut VAT on energy bills this, this autumn. But isn't That's the very good of him, isn't but it? Isn't, but isn't the point mm. that both of these candidates are committed to the net zero target? They are committed to the net zero target because they've probably been told up until our polling today that it was quite a popular thing to do by their spads and by all their advisors and everything. But I'm hoping that our polling will make them realise. I mean, the Telegraph's own polling that ran in the story alongside my polling showed that only 4% <coughs> of Conservative voters see, see it as a number one priority. So maybe it's time for a rethink. But I think of the two candidates, Liz Truss is definitely the one who's more on side for, for, for the consumer and for ordinary people. She's talking about scrapping the green levy, making sure no, that any... No, 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 it's a moratorium. It's a temporary pause. OK, but that... Oh, Fair enough, but that's more than Rishi's saying. I mean, he's saying that his policy is dictated by his nine-year-old daughter, so God help us all in that yeah, case. Yeah, well, most fascinating part of that conversation, Lewis, and thank you, is the most fascinating part of that, and it's so true, is that most of our leaders don't have any opinions. They're told by spads and others what they should think and what will be popular, what will be unpopular. It is truly, the more you get to know these people more depressing in many ways it is. In a moment, I'll be joined by Peter Bone MP and he will argue the case for Liz Truss. And I'll also be joined by Professor Matt Goodwin with some astonishing polling showing you how the British media has changed in the last 10 years and wants you to believe a lot of very bad things about our country. So your thoughts, you know, I showed you that amazing footage on TikTok of the Albanian gangs advertising and the prices now come down. It's a summer sale. And I asked you, which of the two candidates do you think would take on and deal with this crisis? James points the finger at Pretty Patel, says Pretty Patel is a traitor. Well, that's too strong a word and has no intention of stopping the illegals. She needs to resign and take border force with her. Well, I can't see Pretty Patel staying in that job. And I have to say, if these are the last few weeks of Pretty Patel, 
Why on earth, she's suggesting, sending tens of millions more pounds to the French when it seems the more money we send them, the more migrants they send us? I just simply don't know. Francesca says, no, not got the guts, doesn't trust either of them. Keith says, we need a new Home Secretary first. Interesting. Pretty Patel's coming back quite a lot in these answers. Gary says, first thing the new PM must do is sack the Home Secretary. Well, there you are. A lot of you feeling this is down to the Home Secretary. Now, last night we were joined by a Rishi Sunak supporter. Tonight we're joined by a Liz Trust supporter. It is, of course, Peter Bone, Tory MP for Wellingborough. Peter, we'll come on to tax and the really big debate, and it does seem to me that tax policy, the economy, is at the centre of all of this, and, and, hey, you know, these are important. But the two topics you've watched me covering in the last 25 minutes or so, um, let's start off with net zero, this commitment to a net zero target um, by 2050, um, already 25% subsidies of various forms added onto people's electricity bills, terrifying thoughts of what people are going to have to do, getting rid of their boilers, getting electric cars. I mean, neither candidate is going to change policy, are they? Well, I'm not sure that's true, because this trust is going to get rid of those energy subsidies. So we're going to read, what's £153 a year saving? No, for... well, she, well, just to be fair... She's getting rid of those. No, 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 for no, this no. Year. Ah, right, for this year. And then we'll see what she's going to do I this see. year. I see. So it's a temporary moratorium. No, well, I mean, you... I think what people want to see in this country is the cost of living dealt with. Yeah, of course people would like to see net zero, but not a not at the ruination of families. And we've got to think about energy security. So, you know, it's quite sensible what the government is doing, is opening up more oil and gas All right, fields. So, so Liz Trust sticks to the net zero target, though? Well, look, a target in 50 years is pretty meaningless to you and I sitting here. Look. If we can get to electric cars, great. They're better. I don't want to drive around London with diesel. If we can no. do those, we can do those. But what we can't do no. is land the cost. If it's going to cost so much to each family, we can't. Well, I get that. I agree with you. Just and, seems... and that's what Liz has started with. Right. Okay, so I mean, we'll... she said this. So, you know, this was right at the heart so of her short-term case. Bribes. And then Rishi flip-flops. A short-term bribe is what we get from Liz. Well, I don't think that. And we, might get five, we might get 5% off your bills from Rishi. Let's move on to the other issue that we talked about yeah. earlier. Small boat, 696, yeah. the official figure for yesterday. You know, as someone that travels around the country, this, among, particularly amongst Conservative voters, mm. is causing absolute rage and anger. We're being humiliated. It's not the Brexit you and I campaign for. Mm. So why is Liz better than Rishi on this? Well, for, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. This, this issue is something that really affects people now, and they're really concerned about it. And what you've exposed today is extraordinary. But you've been doing this for ages, and the mainstream media hasn't been following up on this. But that's what my constituents are concerned about. And Liz has said that she will expand the Rwanda policy, and, that, and she will tackle these evil uh, smuggling gangs. Now, you know, for years I've chaired the all-party group against human yep. trafficking. Yep. These are evil. Can't say on television, but yep. evil. Yep. So evil. So if we expand the Rwanda policy, let's say we send ten times the number to Rwanda, ten times naught is still is still yeah, naught, ten times naught is no good. Well, but, but, but we but, have to get over the European Court's ruling. So uh, fine. And, and, it, and, I, and, I, and, and I'm I got, all ears, Peter. But, but how? she said she was going to do that. She said she's going to overcome that problem. No, what she has done is she's reparroted uh, Dominic Raab's Bill of Rights, which he's which he's put before the Commons, which he admits at the end of the day will not have supremacy over the European Court of Human Rights. He says it will work. I challenged him in the comments. I said, right, I'm happy to give you the chance. If it works, 
absolutely fine. So but if it doesn't, yeah. then you've got to look at so the So would it work problem. as well as the 2010 manifesto, which promised to reduce net migration to tens of thousands, or the 2015 manifesto? I mean, what I'm saying what to you is... is we've now what we've now got Brexit is, and we can do it. We, but there's been a failure of this time and time again. Let's get to the heart. I wish these things were being debated more than not. Let's get to the heart of it. This leadership contest is... Which you, which you didn't want, I know very much. You, you, felt, you felt it was the wrong thing to do, but it's happening. It's about tax, isn't it? Why is Liz's vision for tax and spend better than Rishi Sunak's? Well, I think, for a start, she's a Conservative. She believes in cutting... She's a Liberal Democrat activist. She, maybe in the part... I think Churchill changed parties, didn't he? But the, the, the <laughs> issue was Rishi put up... And I put up taxes. We promised in our manifesto not to do it. She's yep. going to scrap that and she's going to stop the increase in corporation tax. This is the way conservative. We cut taxes, expand the economy and deal with that. We don't put taxes up and then decide to give a bit back to them and all over the place. So she's the, con- she's the conservative. And that's why I'm supporting her, because she's the conservative. I mean, it's, it's hard for but the former. Gonna, but Rishi now wants to cut. 4p of yeah. everyone's income tax. The most radical tax proposal from a Conservative since Nigel Lawson. And hang on a minute, wasn't he Chancellor and we got the record level of taxation uh, almost ever in this country? Ah, but like Liz Truss, he's changed. Uh, where, where I think you can prove over the years Liz has changed, and I remember right back the day she was in reform, and actually by then she was a true Conservative. Mm. I, I believe she is the Conservative. Look, it, it's, if you believe in the status quo, if you want to carry on, you want the orthodox, you vote for Rishi. If you want change and risk, you go for Liz. And that's what I want. I want to, conserve, I want to try Conservative policies. And if, we, if we're right, and if I'm right, and she does it, we might win the next general election. She's, she's going to win this contest, is she? Ah, I, look. The Times say it's all tightening, it's down oh, to 5%. I, look, I would never say that any no. of the... Ca- We've got, what, four weeks to go before, yeah. the, before the final... No, I think it's... You have to and fight... a slight for- hiccup overnight on regional yeah, pay. And- well, I don't think most people worry about that when, what, Richie's done nine U-turns. What I liked about that on Liz, she did it straight away. I can remember the time in government when obviously the policy was wrong and needed change, and it took weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. She did it straight away. I thought that was quite, quite okay. interesting, courageous. Peter Bone making the case really quite passionately for Liz Truss to win the contest. And we've done our very best thus far to make sure both sides of this get equal time. Now, language matters. Mainstream media matters. It matters hugely. And, you know, we all know on both sides of the pond and indeed around the rest of the English speaking world, there have been some pretty big changes. The problem, particularly of racism, which now appears to be on some days, the biggest crisis the country faces. Yet most of us who've been around for a few years think, well, actually, it's probably diminished in society. Well, someone has been having a deep dive into all of this, and I think the results of it are disturbing, to say the least. Professor Matt Goodwin from Canterbury, Kent University. Um, They say when professors are looking young, you must be getting old. Matt, you've been looking at British newspapers in particular. Yeah. Over the last decade, what have you found? Well, let me tell you, Nigel, I started this project because of something I read in America where a young uh, academic called David Rosado had looked at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and had said, well, why are they talking so much about racism, transphobia, Islamophobia, homophobia, and also these new social justice or woke terms like white privilege, cultural appropriation, gender pronouns, Mm. gender neutral. Mm. And what David showed is basically the the media had sort of gone off a cliff, had become obsessed with this new sort of language of 
um, discrimination and racism and prejudice. And I looked at that report and thought, well, that's incredibly interesting. I wonder what's happened in Britain. So I called up David in New Zealand and said, why don't we rerun your study in Britain? And what we found, as I shared this morning and put it on Twitter and so yeah. on, is exactly the same as America. And you, was it 16 million newspaper articles? We analysed 16 million articles using computer technology between 2000 and 2010. And what we found essentially was that references to racism up 800%, references to transphobia, Islamophobia, homophobia, all through the roof, despite the fact that every reliable piece of evidence we have suggests Britain has become more tolerant, more welcoming, more accepting, you know, less racist. So what's going on here? And that's what I really wanted yeah. to try and figure out. So what is going on here? Is it that the media is reflecting something that you haven't spotted and I haven't spotted, that we have become more deeply intolerant? Or is it that the media is now actually leading the agenda and attempting to change the way we look at the world. Which way around is it? My view is there's more truth now in the latter. And I think what's happened is that the media class, the people who are working in media, have fundamentally changed from the 80s and the 90s. They've become much more elite, much more likely to go to university, to pass through Oxbridge, to pass through the Russell Group institutions, uh, much more elite than their counterparts were in the 1980s. But you're a university professor. You're, you, you're virtually saying that people who've gone to university have come out with a warped view of the world. What I'm saying is that the ideas that we can see in this report, this idea of seeing the world as being a terrible place where racism is surging and transphobia is everywhere mm. and we need to revise our history and watch our cultural appropriation, I'm saying those ideas circulate much more readily in the elite institutions and that is primarily where journalists are now coming from. And I actually think now, today, we need to really think hard about how we diversify the voices in our media. I mean, when you were uh, coming up in politics, I imagine local media, regional media, was still incredibly powerful, yeah, right? Absolutely. Now, completely gutted out. So what you tend to find is journalists will go straight from Oxbridge, Russell Group Universities, straight into the newsroom. And as one senior journalist said to me recently in France, he said, you know, the problem, Matt, is junior journalists don't see themselves as journalists. They see themselves as activists. They see themselves as politically motivated activists who are trying to change the world. It's a very different media yeah. from what we had in the 80s and the 90s. And the big picture, what is actually behind this big picture-wise? I mean, is this, is this an attempt uh, from those who believe strongly in a Marxist ideology to fundamentally change society, to make us hate ourselves, hate our history, hate the way we do things for some new order? Or is that just a bit too conspiratorial? I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's just a combination of the fact that the media has become much more reliant upon graduates from elite universities who tend to think they're trying to make the world a better place yeah. uh, and who have often moved much further to the left on identity and culture. The reason I called this report The Great Awakening yeah. is because in the US, uh, in Spain, in France, in Britain, we now have a lot of evidence showing the same thing, which is that the people who tend to dominate many of the big institutions, media, mm. universities, politics, are way further to the left on these identity yes. and cultural issues. And your polling the other week showed, actually, this is not where the public is at all on any of these things, which presumably is a great opportunity for GB News. Uh, well, I think I view GB News uh, much in the way that I view all media disruptors, uh, challenges, uh, as really filling 
uh, the hole that's been created by this disconnect between the people that are yeah. working in the media newsrooms yeah. and the rest of the country. And my frustration, putting my cards on the table, is that Brexit was supposed to bring this country closer together. It was supposed to address this disconnect between the people in power and the people outside of power. And every single survey and poll and report that I'm working on seems to show the opposite. I think you're right. Matt Goodwin, fascinating, vital, important. Thank you. And of course, GB News is the people's channel. Not, as a friend of mine once called much of the media, fake news. Well, it turns out, actually, in many ways, a lot of them are fake news. Now, quite a big moment today. Nancy Pelosi, speaker, of course, across in the USA. I'm not particularly a fan of Nancy Pelosi, although I do admire her and her husband's financial market trading. They have made an absolute killing on the stock market since she's been Speaker of the House. I'm sure all of that is entirely coincidental. But she's off today and she's landed and she's in Taiwan. Now, this, of course, is seen by the Chinese as a very provocative move. Interestingly, the White House didn't seem to publicly back this trip. And I know there are some British MPs like Tom Tugendhat who intend to visit Taiwan. America does have a pledge that it will defend Taiwan against aggression from China. But in response to this, the Chinese authorities are now have launched military exercises all around Taiwan, including some live naval firing um, and some pretty strong statements. So China reacting very strongly to Nancy Pelosi being in Taiwan. Do we think it's a brave thing for Pelosi to do? Do we think it's a foolhardy and stupid thing for Pelosi to do? I have to say, I'm not normally a fan of the Democrats, but I do think her going shows, actually, that if the Chinese want to act, America might just do something. Might just do something. More thoughts from you coming in about who's going to do more about that channel crisis, about that TikTok video. One viewer says, I would say enough is enough with all these boats, but clearly it isn't, as it's still going on. The money this country would be saving is scary. The more we hand out, the more many more will still come. Yeah, well, that's right. But, you know, I don't see from these candidates any determination or desire to fundamentally change, frankly, anything. Ryan says, no, because neither is willing to leave the ECHR they barely mentioned immigration at all during this contest. No, that's right, Ryan, because they basically agree with each other. Another says, can but won't, status quo. And finally, another says, they can get us out of the Refugee Convention and the ECHR. They can sack Pretty Patel, who is incompetent, and they can stop paying £4.7 million per day to keep asylum seekers in hotels and start the deportation flights. One thing for certain, this issue... It simply isn't going to go away. Now, those of a certain age will remember the power that Spitting Image had back in the 1980s, the vast audiences that it attracted. And one of the absolute favourites was Margaret Thatcher. Well, the voice of Margaret Thatcher, he's now an author today, Stephen Allen, joins me in a moment on Talking Pints. It's that time of the day. Yes, it is time indeed for Talking Pints. And Steve Nallon, I said to you earlier, was the voice of Margaret Thatcher on Spitting Image, that very powerful programme in the 1980s. And here are some of his best bits. 
There are many ways people can help themselves without becoming a burden on the state. For example... Wake up, you blithering idiots! You've made another balls up in Europe! And <laughs> you know, spitting image portraying you as someone who is out of portent. That we get people's minds off the unions, the GLC, the EEC, etc., etc. Well, it was magnificent. It was really, really funny. And Steve Nallon, you were that voice. <laughs> and it kind of... I think a lot of us recognise that voice more than when she actually spoke. <laughs> well, it's the same with all impressionists when you've got a character. Remember uh, Dennis Seeley and Mike Yarwood? Yeah. You know, people didn't know what Dennis Seeley sounded like, and uh, Mike Yarwood invented a version of Dennis Seeley. Which was funny. Which was very funny, which he was very good at, and that became the, the way people imagined, um, you know, Dennis Seeley, what a silly Billy. Well, he never said that, but it became but it his became character. as if he had. Now, you, you've got a cup of tea here. And a rather yes, I have. Rather magnificent teapot. <laughs> so those on radio can't see, but it is Margaret it Thatcher. It is her. It is herself, yes. As, as a teapot. God, um, can I just say, I think the nose, the nose is a little bit longer than in reality. And I'm sure I'm very good at pouring. Goodness me, I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wonderful stuff. And I want to talk a lot about spinning image and what you're doing today. But what you're doing today, I think, a lot, a lot of relevance from your upbringing. Mm. You know, and... Uh, to say that your uh, upbringing was tough is, uh, I, I think, would be rather British understatement, really. Well, here's, it? here's the thing, though. Um, my, my mother died when I was very young. My father was schizophrenic, and I ran away from home when I was 14. That's it, because from then on, I was rescued by my grandmother. Yes. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. And she was a wonderful woman, uh, very tough um, very loving. So I was loved and looked after. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a tough background, but, but at the same time, I was also very, very lucky. It's really interesting because you had TB as well and suffered periods of isolation because of that. So you're not damaged by any of this? Um, I think the consumption, um, the TB, I think that made me isolated um, because I, uh, I was very young. I, I, I didn't understand what was going on. I was only about... Uh, three or four, I think. And I think it made me emotionally self-sufficient, if that makes sense. Is that a good thing? Um, well, it means that you can spend your life writing and um, you, you, you're very happy with your own company. You learn to be happy with your own company. You talking about all this is interesting, because these days you'd be a victim. Uh, I, don't, I don't like uh, the, the, the sense of... If you turn yourself into a victim, I think you're turning yourself into a problem. I think that the way to look at life, the way I've tried to look at life, is that bad things happen, but, you, you know, that good things can come out of it. And, uh, and as I said, I was just very, very oh, lucky. You're absolutely right. Now, for you, it's always going to be drama, it's always going to be comedy, and you're up and you're there on the boards, and you get this big break at a very young age. Yeah, it was just after university, and um, I'd always been interested in politics because I'd, uh, I'd always sort of impersonate, partly because of Mike Yarwood, because Mike Yarwood did all the politicians as well. So I'd always been, and it was a political household as well, um, and so Radio 4 was on all the time, so I knew all the politicians. Yeah. So, so I met John Lloyd, and I did my Margaret Thatcher, and he said, who else do you do? And I said, I do Roy Hattersley, and Roy Hattersley. Was a wonderful character to do, because he claimed to be the eponymous hero of 
spitting image because we didn't only pop it, they actually did any spitting. And uh, so I, I was actually, it was just one of those things where um, it, it was exactly at the right time, I, I was the right person for, for, the, for the show, and they hadn't cast anybody either. Right, yeah. You know, that, 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 what, what, I, what actors sometimes think is that, um, you, you know, that the, they've, they've sorted out the casting. Well, often the producers are desperate for people. Now, it, everything to fit it, the stars were yeah. somehow... And suddenly you're in, and the thing just takes off like a rocket, doesn't it? It does. It, well, it takes a year or so. Uh, the, the, the initial viewing figures were a bit low. But then uh, what happened was the pictures of the characters started appearing in the newspapers instead of... The characters. <laughs> so on budget day... I, was say, I remember your voice. Well, that's well, <laughs> no, well, the yeah, other thing. Yeah. You, you know, you remember... And I did... Another <laughs> one I did on Spitting Image was, uh, was Robert Ronsey. And Robert, the real Robert Ronsey spoke very slowly and precisely. And John Lyon, our producer, said, he said, Steve, this is useless. You know, it's too slow. You've got to speed it up. He gave me the best note I've ever had as, from a director. He said, do it as a seven-year-old boy. So I took that voice and um, and uh, speeded it up and made it much younger. And, and, and everybody in the Church of England, we're not actually far from them. No, we're not. Lambeth Palace. Um, uh, they all impersonated my impersonation of uh, <laughs> yeah. Robert Romsey. No, you did uh, Because, uh, I mean, obviously you had a great gift for it. And, and, and the programme was amazing. But what, what fascinates me is this. So much political satire these days is left wing. It seemed to be left-wing, and in fact, many of its exponents quite proudly say they are left-wing, and that leads to a lot of criticism. Yet, spitting image, to my knowledge, in a decade when the Thatcher government attacked the BBC and these things come back again and again, at no point did spitting image ever get accused of political bias. How did it manage that? Well, I, the, the simple answer to that is that we didn't really talk politics. Um, none of the voice artists were massively interested in politics, either the puppeteers. The people who were interested in politics were Roger Law and, and Peter Flock, and they hated politicians. They didn't yeah. care which party they came from. They just hated politicians. And John Lyde, our, our producer, he hated the word satire. He said, I don't think it's right, uh, satire, because I think satire needs to have a moral viewpoint. It has to have a perspective. And in a way, you're right, because um, it, it, Spitting Image never showed its moral viewpoint. And, and John Lloyd used to say, it's not satire, it's basically <laughs> to the rich and famous on a, on a Sunday night yeah. before you have to get up on a Monday morning and, and go to work. And I think that, that's, um, that's what it was. And also on Spitting Image, um, we, um, we, we had little characters like Alan Bennett, and Alan Bennett used to with little Thora Heard, it, it used to leaven, as it were, the, the heavy political yeah. stuff. And it, there was a lightness <laughs> and a silliness. There was, I mean, that's what I always liked about Speeding Image, that it could be so silly. Yeah. Um, and, of course, it also came from a, a great tradition of Punch and Judy and yeah. uh, King Lear and the all-licensed fool. It was as if this slot, this particular slot on Saturday, uh, Sunday night, which also had the New Statesman, it was almost as if to say, yeah. uh, ITV was saying, you've got this half hour, we can laugh at politicians. Enjoy yourself. They did we it only so give well. you this half hour. Yeah. And, and New Statesman too was terrific. And the New Statesman. Which I loved. You know. Now, of course, my, my political career came after Spinning Image, but I know that you'd have had great fun with me, and I wouldn't have minded one little bit, because uh, the cartoonists certainly had some fun. But think back 20, 30, 40 years. You mentioned Mike Yarwood 
earlier on, who was kind of the king of this or you know, sort of modern inventor of this. But you go back to Rory Bremner and all the other people that you work with. I mean, impressions were big on telly. Now we've got Dead Ringers on Radio 4, which I love. Mm. I think they're terrific. But what's happened to impressions? Well, it, it, it's what do you do with the impression? Um, it's, that, that is, that is it is the, the politicians are too boring now to bother with? No, it's not. It's not at all. It's a very interesting politician. It, it's what do you do with the impression? And I've stopped because you get to... Mike Yarwood told me this. He said, look, he said, when you're 25 uh, and you're impersonating somebody who's 50, that's funny. When you're 50 mm. and impersonating somebody 25, that's not so funny. So you, you, impressionists get to an age when they essentially have to, to stop doing it. So yeah. I still do a few, but I don't do that many. Um, but, but, but the spitting image is pretty much the sort of zenith of it, really, because, precisely because uh, we were doing interesting things with the characters. No, I mean, you really were. Now, you've done a fantastic job. You've changed careers. I have. There is a change of tack. Clearly, age has made you decide not to be an impressionist <laughs> after following Mike Yarwood's advice. And you've now become an author. And here it is, folks. It is... The Time That Never Was by Steve Nallen, you see. And, interestingly, it's about a young lad in the north of England who goes to live with his granny and sleeps in the attic. And, of course, so many great books over the years are based on something to do with life experience. I think if you find... If you put a bit of your own truth in a book... Uh, people will recognise it as a truth. Not the truth, because there are many truths. Everybody has their own truth. And, and my unique perspective on life, growing up in um, uh, the 1970s, with the, you know, David Berry and all the rest of it, I was being brought up by a woman who was born before the Titanic sank. Mm. And that gave me a perspective on life. Um, and she lived through two world wars. I said she was the toughest woman I ever met. Uh, my teacher uh, was terrified of her, uh, and I said, well, at what level was, uh, were you terrified? He said, Steve, meeting Mrs. Oddie, was the name of my grandmother, yeah. he said, meeting your grandmother was at bowel movement level. <laughs> sort of Grandma Giles type. Well, it's Grandma Giles, absolutely <laughs> Grandma Giles, who was Giles, of course. I mean, yeah. That's yeah, the yeah. thing about Giles. Yeah. Um, uh, but the, 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 and and that, that's where the comedy of the book comes from. You know, that's, so I've, not, I've changed careers, but I, I'm still trying to put as much comedy into it. And you, you, the, the, one of the problems at the moment, I think, on television, we, we chatted about this earlier, is... There's not that much comedy in uh, no. uh, on television. No. Because, but any enjoy. form of comedy might cause offence. Well, don't don't be so offended. Is 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 my attitude. Don't be so offended. Um, there's still places that in uh, uh, in London uh, where you can perform and you can basically say anything you like. But uh, it's less less the case on television. For also and for for the, partly the reasons that your previous guest was talking about. It's a university educated. Yeah. Group and that began, I think, with the Monty Python. Uh, previous to that, you had people like uh, Dennis Main Wilson, Johnny Hamp. Um, I tell you one thing that uh, Dennis Main Wilson said to me. Um, he said he was working at the BBC, and a scene shifter came up to him and, and gave him a script. He said, "Do you read this? It's a comedy script." He went home and read it. It was uh, by a man called John Sullivan, yep. uh, Citizen Smith, and uh, he got it produced the next day. That wouldn't happen 
That just yeah. wouldn't happen. And they that. take risks and they well, go they're, they're, with they're, it. But, and... you know, he just recognized... But, you yeah. see, Janice Mayne Rilton recognised... Yeah. I mean, he but produced was... The Goons. Yeah. Uh, he, he was involved in Steptoe. <laughs> he worked with him. He knew what comedy was. He understood it. We need more comedy, more fun... <laughs> More impressions, more to more, the world. More, absolutely more, more fun, more silliness, yeah, more fun and, and, more, and silliness. More cartoons, more cartoons. And lots and lots of people being absolutely offended by virtually everything. And we tell them, go to hell, don't worry about it. And I have to say, Steve, what a pleasure to have you on Talking Pints. And great luck. Thank you. With your new career. Great to have you. Thank you. OK, I've got a couple of minutes left with you. It is time for Barrage the Farage. I've no idea what you've sent in, so here goes. Mike asks, Liz Truss says she's going to ignore Nicola Sturgeon, but is that the right thing to do? Well, <clears throat> she kind of calls Nicola a show-off, says she's going to ignore her, and here's the fun thing about Liz Truss. If she wins, when she wins, looking at the, lo looking at the numbers, it will be a very, very high-risk environment. Peter Bone used the word risk about her just earlier. She is more prone to coming out with all sorts of statements even than Boris Johnson was as Prime Minister. She does seem to fire from the hip, but I think she's likely to get herself into real trouble very, very easily. Ryan asks me, if the Tories can't cut, crack down on illegal migration, who will? Well, <clears throat> truth is, folks, that uh, there's zero chance of Labour doing it. Now, they say... What they're going to do is target the criminal gangs. And I have paid, you know, absolutely full respect to the authorities for the gang they did nick. 39 of them. Uh, the big guy is up in court in London. The gang made 13 million out of trafficking. They got 10,000 people across the English Channel. And cracking down on that gang slowed the numbers that were coming across in July. But as you can see... The Albanians have now taken over. They've got boats. They're packing them in 50 at a time. They're allowed by TikTok and other social media channels to advertise, it seems, willy-nilly. So the truth of it is, no one is going to crack down. And actually, rather like membership of the European Union was for most of my career, pretty much the entirety of the UK political and media class think it's a jolly good thing to be part of the ECHR and all the various United Nations things we're signed up to because it shows what wonderful, lovely, civilised people we are. Oh, absolutely. Let's put everybody in the world ahead of our own interests and our own people, which is pretty much what it boils down to.